Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, more on the Capitol insurrection. So this is a week where Congress is debating what to do um, with two of its members, one who came out against Trump and positioned herself against what was going on in the Capitol, and the other who was in favor of it and has um, propagated a lot of conspiracy theories, and Congress is in the middle this week of a, of a fight among the Republicans about what to do about each of these people. And we ha- we're facing the imminent impeachment process again of the former president around his incitement of the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. All of this has forced us to look again at the press coverage of that event and of what led up to it. And there still seems to be a lot of ambiguity in the media coverage of what this thing was and what caused it and what we're supposed to make of it. And it's important that we understand and that we get this right. I'm really happy to be joined by Kathleen Ballou. She's a historian at the University of Chicago and has written about the modern far right for her book, Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement and Paramilitary America, published by Harvard University Press. Hello, Kathleen. Hi, thank you for having me. Great that you're here. Do you do you agree with me that the coverage, even now a month out from this event, still seems generally sort of muddled in terms of understanding the roots of what happened on that day? Absolutely. And I think that there are good reasons why it's so hard for us to tell this story. And the first reason for this is that one of the groups of people involved on January 6th, which is the area of my study, the white power movement, has been really deliberate about trying to obscure itself throughout its entire history. So this is a movement that came together in the late 70s and early 80s, bringing together Klansmen, neo-Nazis, white separatists, and then later skinheads and militiamen in a very broad and organized social movement. It is responsible for enormous and um, cataclysmic actions like the Oklahoma City bombing, which is the largest mass casualty attack in the United States between Pearl Harbor and 9-11. And yet we don't really have a broad understanding of this as a social movement. That's partly because these activists work really hard to um, occlude their ties with one another, to confuse the story, and to appear as lone wolves because it helps them with their overall strategy. This sprung up in the years after the Vietnam War, right? Um, and, and you've made the point several times I've read that these types of movements often materialize in a sort of post-war era. Are we still dealing with the after effects of, of Vietnam in these people? Or was there some other, are we looking at more recent conflicts that spawned this latest group? I think this surge is mobilizing veterans still from Vietnam and the Gulf War, but also from the longer war on terror. Uh-huh. Um, that aftermath impact is actually the best predictor for white power activity and Klan activity throughout American history. It's a better predictor than poverty, um, economic change, immigration change, um, populist movements, uh, major civil rights legislation. The big X factor seems to be the aftermath of warfare. Um, And we've now been at war longer than my undergraduates can remember a time when we were not prosecuting the war in Afghanistan. 
Um, Which, by the so, way, is very that in itself is interesting because we don't think of it that way as a country. We, we don't do. think we don't think of it as we've basically been at war, um, and this is the. I mean, we're still at war in some ways. So that in itself is kind of under under told. I think. I think so too. I mean, if you ask people on the street, what are the top five crises facing our country? I think left or right, unless you're talking to a military family, war won't even appear on that list. Um, Wars in our country are increasingly fought by a smaller uh, segment of the population, by people who are career armed forces and who often lives in socially segregated settings away from other Americans. We don't see pictures of coffins coming back draped in the flag. We don't even really take this up seriously as part of our political debate. I think um, it only came up in passing um, in this presidential election. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also important to understand that that aftermath period problem is not just about returning veterans and active duty troops, although um, white power groups recruit very deliberately from both of those populations. And those people do bring a lot of skills that escalate violence to these groups. It's actually that all of us get more violent in the aftermath of war. Um, mm-hmm. That, But that statistic, sociologists have shown, cuts across gender, cuts across age group, cuts across who did and didn't serve. I think that what we're seeing is that groups like this are inherently opportunistic and will exploit whatever window is open um, for recruitment and radicalization. So what we see here is sort of a perfect storm of opportunity Um, between the ways that President Trump opened that window even further, um, the radicalizing push factors at work like the coronavirus, economic uncertainty, the major racial justice uh, protests across the country, all of those move people towards radical action. And then we have this steady drumbeat effect of the aftermath of war that just creates this ongoing um, sense of emergent action. Does it have to be a hot war? Or like the, the, you know, economic race, lack of commercial options or, or career options. Do those, can we, can we think of those as a kind of war setting or in terms of these people's worldviews that, that that's the way they see it or not? That's an interesting question. I mean, people in the white power movement would tell you that their race is under attack, that uh-huh. their entire future is under attack, that, um, you know, there's a lot of different issues that you or I might think of as capital C conservative, like opposing abortion, opposing immigration, opposing mm-hmm. LGBT rights or feminism. All of those issues for people in the white power movement have to do with what they consider an imminent threat to the birth rate of white children. So mm-hmm. they oppose immigration because white children might be outnumbered. They oppose abortion because they don't want to lose white babies. Um, And all of that is because they see this moment that we often think of as a peaceful transformation when a city or a nation might no longer be majority white. They see that as tantamount to racial annihilation. They see that as an apocalyptic threat. So the most extreme of these activists are always feeling embattled in the ways that you talk about. Um, I mean, I think that there's a general and broader question embedded in that about sort of the way that that war is all over our country um, Mm -hmm. in the post-Vietnam moment. We think about the culture war, the war on poverty, the war on crime, um, and those are just sort of the ones that are commonly listed. But I think that there are all kinds of ways that what I would describe as paramilitary ideologies um, have infiltrated all kinds of parts of our socialization. Mm. 
you use the term repeatedly white power. And in fact, it's in the title of your book. And I know that you that, that you think that that's a more accurate term for this to describe this movement. It's not a term that most mainstream media outlets are comfortable with. Um, why do you think that is? You know, I think that this is a really interesting um, set of problems. And I'm actually involved in um, a book right now that's an edited collection called A Field Guide to White Supremacy. Um, and part of what we're working on in that project is to put together some recommendations for the Associated Press style book. Because if you look at the AP style book today, there's a lot of information on um, radical Islamist terror. There's hardly anything on this. Most mm -hmm. of the guidance in the AP style book is about what um, I, I think it's under the heading alt-right, um, yeah. which is which is largely a misnomer and is not used by experts in the field um, for very much except for 2016 to 2017. If anything, mm -hmm. it's an aberrant blip in a much longer story. Um, I think white nationalism is technically correct from a political science perspective, but it has a really serious misunderstanding built into it because I think people who aren't well read on this, and that's most people, hear white nationalism and think, aha, that just sounds like nationalism, but bigger, right? It sounds like overzealous patriotism. Mm -hmm. And that is not what this is. The nation in white nationalism from 1983 forward is not the United States. It's the Aryan nation. Mm. It's not interested in a white United States. This movement is interested in the overthrow of the United States in, over, in order to create their own white nation and all white world. Um, it's hard to overstate how important that distinction is. And our terminology ought to reflect how radical this proposal is. It's fundamentally anti-democratic um, and it's fundamentally anti-American. This isn't something that should be um, a matter of political tussle. This is a, I, I think that understanding this and calling what it is ought to be a centrist position. And that's sort of the argument of the, um, the Democrats in the House who are pursuing this impeachment case, I think. I think that that's right. But this is also another example of how, you know, the events of January 6th, they're already being really wildly misrepresented um, and differentially represented for different political reasons. We all saw that news footage. We know what that was. Um, but I think that a lot of people are still calling that an act of misguided patriotism. And it isn't. It, it was an act of domestic terror. It was a a forceful action meant to derail the functioning of American democracy um, mm -hmm. and to let it go down in our reporting as anything else is is an ethical problem. Um, the other thing I would just add to this question of how the story um, is and is not told is that I, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to this because I'm somebody who's had my eye on this particular problem for a long time. And, and I, you know, there are beat reporters who have been in the, these spaces for quite a long time. There are activists and watchdogs and de-radicalizers and government officials who have really immersed themselves in understanding the ins and outs of this movement. But understandably, understandably there are also a whole bunch of people um, ranging from reporters to editors to producers who have just gotten thrown into this story mm -hmm. and are having to very quickly catch up. And I think that one of the most common things that happens is when you encounter an ideology that is so fundamentally objectionable and so radically different, people really want to spend a lot of time 
categorizing and understanding and making sense, right? So that leads to two problems. One is the quote unquote Nazi next door story where people go and profile these people and sort of discover, oh my goodness, these are actually people. Um, Mm -hmm. That's not a surprise. And what we do with that kind of reporting often is inadvertently create a platform for people to spread their beliefs and do the work of recruitment. Mm-hmm. The other problem that happens because of this is that we spend a whole lot of time trying to get our head around one part of the story. So people will double down into special segments, like it, we're going to now understand everything about just the Proud Boys, or we're going to figure mm-hmm. out what is up with this Oath Keepers thing, or we'll look at Adam Waffen, or we'll look at the base. Um, we get this kind of story after mass shootings too. So we get like deep reporting about Pittsburgh as anti-Semitic violence, Charleston as anti-Black violence, El Paso as anti-Latino violence. And what mm-hmm. we don't get is the connective story, because all of those things are part of the same groundswell. It's very difficult to put the pieces together in real time, but we do have ability to do that when we use history, sociology, all of these watchdog networks, and the amazing work that beat reporters are doing on the ground today. But you know, we, we don't have that problem when we're writing about Islamic terrorism. There will be different groups and different allegiances, but if you watch the coverage, it's sort of stitched into this whole, right? This whole fabric of ideology. Um, It doesn't seem to suffer the same problems that the way that you're describing the, the coverage of the white power movement. Yeah. And I mean, there are also entire categories for things like, I remember hearing one story reported as, um, I forget what the wording was. It was something like, this is part of um, ISIS. It's ISIS adjacent activism. Mm -hmm. And I was Mm -hmm. thinking, you really don't have a way of describing that kind of associational umbrella that connects this other kind of phenomenon. And yet these activists very commonly hold multiple memberships. They move between groups. They are involved in both public facing and violent underground action often. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have an even more complex problem after January 6th, because now it's not just about white power. I think now what we really are looking at is how to describe a groundswell of people um, where white power represents one very important thread and certainly represents the biggest and longest and most deeply developed infrastructure. Um, But it's running into two other things. One is kind of the garden variety MAGA stop the seal Trump base. And the other is QAnon, um, which is composed of people who have been very, very quickly radicalized um, and who have these deeply held beliefs that I think we don't understand very well yet um, and that have really tragic consequences both in people's individual lives and in the actions they then carry out. You, I want to come back to what what you think is going to happen next. Um, but I mentioned in the intro uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and this and this uh, debate among House Republicans about what to how to respond to her. Um, you said earlier something about profiling people and platforming their beliefs and basically serving as a recruitment tool. We've had a debate at CJR um, about whether 
she is getting a inordinate and unnecessarily large amount of coverage given her who she is and how new she is and what and the size of of the audience that she represents but what do you think about that do you think how do how what is the appropriate way to handle somebody like her who's an elected official but who holds these extreme views well, you know, I'm not a journalist. I'm a historian. Um, I think that that's the right question because I think that there are real ways that circulating those ideas on her behalf have consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would also say that it would be a mistake to overly focus on any one person when we're thinking about this problem. And I think this is true about President Trump, too. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of people are sort of thinking like, ah, he's off Twitter. He's not in office anymore. This is no longer a thing. It's going to dissipate. Um, I think that this is essentially at its core, a leaderless movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the people who have the guns and have the paramilitary training camps may have been using Trump um, as a moment of opportunity and may have even liked parts of what he was doing. But I have no confidence that at any point he was in charge of this movement or that mm-hmm. he had the power to call it off. I think that's even less true about somebody lower down in the in the totem pole, although certainly I can imagine that um, that certain windows of opportunity are being created by different political moves. I think what we must do is keep our eye on the movement as a whole, because At the end of the day, I think the January 6th insurrection was not meant as a mass casualty attack, but was meant as a show of force that a small number of people could strike right at the heart of democracy. And they did that. And online, they talked about it as a success. And Mm -hmm. the fact that it wasn't immediately followed by more protests seems really to be not because the movement dissipated or is in a state of abeyance but because activists were concerned that they would be arrested and were reshuffling their plans and were regrouping. And they were also carrying out recruitment um, among QAnon and Stop the Steal audiences. So we know from the history that the next steps are likely to involve mass casualty attacks. Now, this is a movement that has in the past um, attacked infrastructure, attacked synagogues and ethnic studies classrooms and gas lines and assassinated um, political opponents and journalists and federal judges and state troopers. They have attempted to poison the water supply of cities. They have attempted to blow up nuclear power plants. They have attempted to bomb the Hoover Dam. Um, and they did successfully carry out um, the Oklahoma City bombing. That's 168 people dead, including 19 children mm-hmm. and hundreds more people injured. Um, And the fact that we don't carry that story around when we talk about January 6th is really part of the problem here. We have to understand that the next steps are mass casualty attacks and not just for the sake of it, but with the purpose of awakening other people to their cause and trying to bring about race war that overthrows the U.S. government. So this is about civil war. It's not about a presidential election. It's not about policy. It's not about the wall. It's about civil war and civil anarchy. Yeah. I mean, those other issues are ways that the people that I'm talking about bring people in. Um, And certainly, you know, certainly I could see white power activists being quite excited about the wall and they are anti-immigration and they've been trying to secure the border through their own means since at least the 1970s. Um, but I, I just think that 
we have to keep in perspective that most of us think about politics as the main mechanism for changing the country. Um, And the last time this movement became violent was exactly at the moment in 1983 when they thought mainstream politics could no longer deliver change that they wanted. And I said it's about civil war, but even more fundamental than that, it's it's about race, right? Absolutely. This is a, a very diverse social movement in many ways. It cuts across class, region, gender, age group, class, uh, educational background, um, service status, and more. But but it is profoundly white supremacist. Yeah, I, I assume. Have, have you been obsessing over these videos of January sixth that a, a, a bunch of them have surfaced? You know, kind of annotating who's who, looking at the symbolism, looking at the sort of formations that people were forming. Have you spent time with all that? No. So I, I, like I said, I'm a historian and not a watchdog. So um, my perspective here is more contextual, I suppose. Uh, well, that, I appreciate that. I, I, the reason I ask is there's one of the ways I think that, that the media sort of confuses this is, is, to, is to not get to the fundamentals of what's going on and instead say, oh, well, it was a it was a why it was a big church of people. There were some radicals. There were some MAGA people who were just just showed up. There were some there were QAnon people. There were some anti-abortion people. Blah, blah, blah. It was a it was a it was a jumble, and therefore you can't really come to any conclusions about what they were really after. Um, and I just wonder what you thought about that. Well, look in any mass movement, I think. Let's see how to frame this out. I think so. I think there's a pervasive public idea that mass movements are composed of organized groups of people who agree on what they're doing, um, and that is simply not true for any social movement I can think of in the 20th or 21st century. There's always disagreement. There are always people there for a variety of reasons. Um, there's all kinds of messiness involved in social change. Um, And here what we see are those three really clear strands of kind of Trump faithful, QAnon, and white power militant right organized violence. Um, I tend to think that the white power movement segment is a good place to spend our interpretive energy because Mm -hmm. when it is so organized and so ideological and when it comes with infrastructure like weapons and camps and facilities and publications, there's a place to start in combating it. Um, I think the kind of work we need to do around QAnon is much more um, in in the vein of de-radicalization. And I have to say that my training as a historian doesn't prepare me well for QAnon because although in some ways it is the same conspiracy theory about endangered elites and white children that we have seen rehashed over and over and over since at least the protocols of the elders of Zion in the earliest 20th century, but certainly maybe even before that. Um, it's, it's working in a way that I think is very new and that I think people don't understand very well yet. So as a historian, you know, I'm trained to kind of step back and say, oh, this is, this is a little new and a little fast for me to really have a sense of what we're doing here. That's not the case with white power because they are using the same playbook that they have been using for decades, if not generations. They use the same ideology. We know what this looks like. So there are a set of actions and responses that we might adopt. Um, and, you know, from the perspective of journalism, there is a context that is already available for reporting about these groups. Yeah. 
So you've you've looked at the whole the the whole kind of arc of history around these groups and and their growth and how they've kind of morphed. Where do you think we are now in this war? Is this the beginning of a of a new intense phase, do you think? Yeah, I think January 6th was an inflection point. I think that a lot more activity will be unfolding. I hope I'm wrong about that, but um I think that's where we are. Kathleen, it's great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. You can read CJR's ongoing coverage of the impeachment and the continuing fallout from the insurrection at CJR.org. Follow our daily email, the media today, and watch us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening. See you next week.